I direct your attention to the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. And we are going to be reading verses 14 through 17, Hebrews chapter 4, 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. And in the interest of time this morning, we will not get further than verse 14. So we're going to be camping out a little at verse 14, but just to set the context of this passage, I have identified the theme of this portion as falling short of the grace of God. Falling short of the grace of God. And the key verse is verse 15, where the writer admonished his readers to look carefully that no one fails of the grace of God, that no one comes short of the grace of God. This would be a throwback, of course, it seems, to chapter 4 and verse 16, where the writer had encouraged his readers. He says, let us come to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and receive help in time of need, that we might receive grace and help in time of need. He says, we're to come boldly because we have a great high priest. And so everything the writer says here in verses 14 through 17 would be centered around this idea of falling short of God's grace. And what we're going to find this morning in verse 14 is a suggestion of one way in which we as um, believers, more so, um, I use the term professing believers, may fall short of the grace of God. Here in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews had been discussing the rigorous, grueling nature of the Christian life, using the imagery of an athlete in a marathon race. He encourages readers in verse 2 that they should, in running this race, they should run this race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down before the right hand of the majesty at hand. Then he says, for consider him who endured such contradiction against himself by sinners, lest you become weary and faint in your minds. And perhaps it was in view of the stress and weariness of the Christian race 
the stress brought on by persecution from without, the gnawing struggle against unbelief and apostasy from within, as well the painful chastening discipline of the Lord that the author exhorted his readers here in verse 14 to strive for peace and holiness, which he says, without which no one will see the Lord. So against the backdrop of stress, against the backdrop of the persecutions from without, the pressures from within that came from this battle against unbelief, this battle against apostasy, the writer says to them, listen, follow peace with all men and holiness without which we, no one will see the Lord. And we know very well, don't we, the real temptation there is when weary and fatigued and stressed to become bitter, resentful, sour, and difficult to get along with. And if not for the grace of God, this in turn breeds dissension and disunity among God's people. So in such a context of trials and challenges in which these Jewish believers found themselves, the author's mention of the need for peace was most timely. As far as he was concerned, the persecutions, the challenges, the distresses these Christians were experiencing were not to induce them to vent their frustration on those around them. Rather, these difficulties, these bitter experiences were to draw them closer to one another, were to motivate them to pursue peace with even greater intensity. I want to look at this verse this morning. I want to look at these two pursuits which these Jewish Christians, and by extension, you and I, are called to undertake as Christians. First of all, the pursuit of peace. The author says there in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Peace, we know, is one of the major concepts we find in the Word of God. And when the writers of Scripture use this word peace, the word conveys far more than the absence of strife or war. As used by these writers, the word conveys, among other ideas, that of soundness or wholeness in relationships, it speaks, of hearts in tuned one with another. And related to this peace is a spirit of fellowship and love toward one another. Now, the call that's being issued here, when the writer says, follow peace with everyone, we must not understand this. In fact, some commentators do that. They confine everyone to those within the church, those within the body of Christ. But I think that the writer would not be so limited in his application. Because, you see, the Christian lives not only in the context of the fellowship of God's people, but the Christian lives in the context of the wider society. The Christian lives with neighbors. The Christian lives with colleagues at the workplace. 
And if you go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 19, you'll hear the Apostle Paul saying there in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, if it be possible, as much as lie in you, live peacefully, peaceably with all men, with all people. Now that word strive, the word that is used there in the Greek means to follow or pursue ardently. It carries the idea of running after something eagerly and assiduously. It's the same word, actually, that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, where he speaks of his running the race, the Christian race, of his pressing, he says, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the fact that we are exhorted to pursue peace, to run after peace, to strive for peace, clearly indicates that this crucial grace will never be realized, will never be achieved, will never be attained apart from effort, apart from diligence, apart from determination. The point of our text is that part of what it means to run the race of faith is to so run that despite its rigors and fatigue, the stress and strain of the race, we do not succumb to the temptation to, uh, for it to embitter us, thereby soaring our relationships, particularly with our fellow believers in Christ. Once again, as I said, you know very well, don't you? I know that, that when we're under stress, when we're under fatigue, our default position is to be ready to do what? Take it out on others. Says one commentator, quote, The believer is to be zealous in walking in peace as the racer is to secure the crown. It will not be obtained haphazardly, but only by such as pursue it as an all-worthy, all-desirable object and who make every effort to secure it. End quote. That's what the writer is saying. The writer is saying that when it comes to peace, whether in the church or in the family, it is something that has to be pursued ardently. It is something that has to be pursued determinedly. It is something that is to be pursued vigorously. Now the question is, why is it so important that we pursue peace with all? And I have a few suggestions based on the word of God. And the first is this. It is important that we pursue peace with all men, with all people. Because the God we serve as believers in Christ is characteristically the God of peace. We should strive for peace. We should be earnest. We should be diligent and determined in seeking peace with all people because the God we serve is characteristically the God of peace. Romans chapter 15, verse 33, chapter 16, verse 20, Philippians 4, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 13, verse 20. In all of those passages, God is characterized as the God of peace. Indeed, it's set forth in Scripture as the God who in Jesus Christ made peace with lost, guilty sinners. And the word of God teaches that he did this by the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1, 
and verse 20. In addition, through the atoning work of Christ, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, thereby establishing peace. In other words, part of his redemptive work, part of Christ's redemptive work, here it comes, was not just to make peace between God and the sinner, but to make peace between people. The word of God says there in Ephesians chapter 2, by the death of his cross, through his blood, he tore down the middle wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And in view of the fact, here's, here's the point we're making this morning, in view of the fact that we are the children of the God of peace and we have been saved on account of the Prince of Peace. It therefore stands to reason that like our Father, like our Savior, we as Christians should at all costs pursue peace with everyone. Second, it is crucial for us to pursue peace with all men because God has called and commanded us to peace. God has commanded us, God has called us to peace. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 once again, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul knew that it was near impossible to live peacefully with everyone. But notice what he says, if possible, and then he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Colossians 3.15 teaches that as Christians, we are called to peace in one body. Constantly you will find in the word of God, God commanding his people, as he does in Hebrews 12 verse 14, to pursue peace. 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called you to peace. Psalm 34 verse 14, seek peace and pursue it. In view of the fact that the kingdom of God consists in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 14 verse 17, Christians are urged in Romans 14 and verse 19 to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 13, the Thessalonians are urged to be at peace among themselves. And then thirdly, it's vitally important that as Christians we pursue peace. Why? Because of God's promised blessings. Because of God's promised blessings. Here's the point. Do you know God actually promises to bless those who pursue peace? I mean, it seems so simple, it seems so commonplace, but that's what God says in his word. God has promised to bless those who pursue peace. Think of that. Psalm 37, verse 37. Listen to what God says in his word. He assures us that there is a future for the man of peace. Ever heard somebody tell another person, you have no future? <laughs> what an awful, ugly thing it is. You, you have no future. But here is God. God saying there is a future for the person who is devoted, who is in pursuit of peace. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20, there's this promise that those who plan peace will have joy. Who are the miserable people around? Who are the miserable people around? Those who are what? Cantankerous. 
Those who are always fighting, those who are always given to arguing and fighting. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 9, here's another blessing. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. In what respect are they blessed? Here's what he says, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, in the Greek, the pronoun they is emphatic. And the effect of the emphasis is to say this, that they and they alone shall be called the children of God. God places a high premium on this matter of peace, particularly among his people, that he promises a blessing on those who pursue peace. We read in James chapter 3, verse 18, that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then what about 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11? Want to know another blessing that God promises? There we find that the blessing of God's abiding presence is promised to those believers who live in harmony and peace with one another. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says this, Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Somebody says, but isn't God always with us? Because he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What he's talking about here, you see, he's talking about that special sense of God's near presence. Where God favors us. God is delighted in drawing near to us. Why? Because peace and harmony reigns among his People. If you notice Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. And the psalmist likens it to the ointment that fell, run from Aaron's beard to the skirt of his garment. And then he talks later down, he mentions about Mount Zion, and he says, For there the Lord appointed the blessings forevermore. Listen, not just physical Mount Zion, but Zion was what? Zion was the place where Israel rallied together. Zion was the place of unity. What is the psalmist suggesting there? That it is at the place of unity and peace that God blesses his people. Now, who knows the enormous damage? Many a church has incurred because of the failure of Christians to take seriously this matter of pursuing peace. And the sad fact, beloved, is that for a lack of peace in its ranks, many a church has been massively wrecked. Many a church has been grievously ruined, all because of continual internal strife, internal bickerings, and unsettled grievances. On account of pride, stubbornness, and selfishness, very little or no attention is given to the biblical mandate to pursue peace. And it's an awful thing, it's a, it's a dreadful thing, it's a sorrowful thing to see a church, to see God's people living in dissension and disharmony one with another. And what, what specifically are the effects 
of the damage that's done when disunity and disorder and a lack of peace is there in a church where peace does not reign, where peace is not sought after. A tarnished testimony before the world. Reproach to the name of Christ. The absence of the power and presence of God in that church such that hearts become cold and insensitive to not only to the Spirit of God, but to the Word of God. In other words, where there is disunity, where there are undercurrents of disharmony, where there's a lack of peace, what happens? It's time is and short circuits the blessing and power of God. You see, like a parasite eating away at an organism, the absence of peace saps a church of its spiritual power and vitality. It frustrates and it retards the progress of that church, making it more vulnerable to the ploys and assaults of the devil. That's what it does. It destroys, it acts like a parasite. And it's no wonder the Apostle James will say, as he does in James chapter 3 and verse 16, James says, therefore, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In verses 17 and 18 of that same chapter, James portrays by way of contrast, when a church is in that healthy state of peace and harmony, James suggests there, he says, that where such is the case, where believers are peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, he says this, they sow the fruit of peace in righteousness. Or I should say that the other way around, they sow the fruit of righteousness in peace. Now the question is, since the need to pursue peace is so critical, how are we as Christians to pursue peace? That's a good question. If peace is crucial to the stability and well-being of a church, if it is crucial to the stability and well-being of Christians, the question is, how do we go about maintaining, how do we go about pursuing peace with everyone? How do we strive for peace? First of all, we strive for peace by cultivating a forbearing spirit. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where he encourages the Ephesian Christians to bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love, he says there. And the way they're going to do that, Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, here's what Paul says. How do we go about forbearing one another in love? He says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What that means is this, that where persons are prideful, where persons are brash, where persons are impatient and impulsive, where they are headstrong and stubborn, peace and harmony will never be achieved. There can be no peace, Paul is suggesting, apart from patience, from gentleness, 
from humility. Paul is also saying that part of what it means to pursue peace in the body of Christ is to go about it eagerly, is to go about it diligently, it is to recognize the prior unity, the prior work of the Spirit in creating unity. This is very important. If you notice in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul did not say that we are to endeavor to create peace. He did not say that. And there's a reason why. Notice how he describes this peace. He says the unity of the Spirit. In other words, it is the Spirit who creates unity. And what the Word of God is teaching is this, that there is, independent of how we feel about one another, independent of what is happening at any given time among God's people, Paul is saying there, the Word of God is saying there, that objectively speaking, there is already a unity that has been created by the Spirit of God. How so? Because the moment we became saved, here's what Paul says, for by one Spirit were you all baptized into one body. All believers in Christ are united, whether or not they want us think think so. All believers are one. And that is why it is a woeful tragedy when we find people trying to split apart Christians by bringing in all kinds of humanistic, worldly idolatry. We have said this time and again. Critical race theory is a disservice to the gospel. It is worthless. It does nothing for the help of the gospel. It does nothing but tear apart the church of God which God has built. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The word of God says, he says, whether there be Jews, Gentiles, bond or free, matters not one's social distinction, matters not one's ethnicity. The word of God is saying this, for by one, for by faith in Christ, you are all the children of God, all one in Christ. And to strive for peace, to pursue peace, is to recognize this prior work of the Holy Spirit in creating peace. So what are you and I called to do in Ephesians? We're not called to create peace. That's already done by the Spirit of God. We are called, notice there, to maintain it. To maintain it. The vehicle has already been manufactured. We don't go up again creating a car. We do what? We maintain it. We do the oil change. And we do the various um, inspections. We maintain that vehicle. Paul is saying here, the way we pursue peace is to recognize the prior work of the Spirit in creating peace. And what we are to do is to maintain it. How do we maintain it? Practical steps, first of all, by forbearing one another. Bearing with one another in love. We cultivate, we strive for peace by cultivating a forbearing spirit. Now let me say this, this also involves, of course, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. It involves overlooking what we might call minor offenses and irritations, and we have to determine what is minor and what is not. Overlooking and forgiving, listen, as long as it is not something that seriously compromises the word of God. For example, the sin is public. It must be dealt with publicly. If there's an offense between two persons and one cannot 
deal with it, it must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. So we are saying here, forgiving one another, and it involves overlooking minor annoyances and irritations. We have to have the maturity to know what is minor and what is not. But here's some scripture, Proverbs 19, verse 11, speaks of the wisdom of such a course. Here's what the Word of God says. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 12, verse 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 15, verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Go over to the New Testament and you find the same principle at work. The Word of God instructs believers in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the, whole, as the Lord has forgiven, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness. And a willingness to overlook minor offenses are key to pursuing peace with all men. And when we nurse and harbor grudges, beloved, because of what someone has done to us, as I said, what we do, we stymie, we short-circuit the very blessing that God promises for those who pursue peace. Now, let me say just a brief word about this whole matter of overlooking offenses. Because ever so often there's misunderstanding as to what it means to overlook an offense, as to what it is all about. Let me say this, that some, some situations and some sins must be dealt with up front. They can't be overlooked. They must be dealt with, and they must be dealt with decisively, because problems can ensue. We need to keep in mind, beloved, that overlooking offenses does not mean keeping quiet while bearing the hurt of the offense and bitter feelings. It doesn't mean to sweep the matter under a rug for a peaceful and quiet life while resenting the offender. You know, there are people who say, you know, I'm just going to overlook it. But as long as he or she lives, I'll never, we'll never cross path. We'll never exchange words. I forget it, I forgive him, I forget it, but I'll have nothing to do with that person. You know what we call that? Bitterness. Because overlooking an offense carries with it what? Forgiveness. It carries with it a willingness to let go of the hurt suffered from the offense. There are many who misguidedly do that in the name of peace. You'll hear them say something like, just for a peaceful life, I'm not going to say anything, just going to let it slip by. Just going to let it slide. But that's not necessarily biblical forgiveness. That's not necessarily biblical peacemaking. In fact, in his book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict, this author, author Sand, Ken Sand, he says this. He puts the whole matter in perspective for us as to what it means to overlook offenses. He says this, quote, 
Overlooking is not a passive process in which you simply remain silent for the moment but file away the offense for later use against a person. That is actually a form of denial that can easily lead to brooding over the offense and building up internal bitterness and resentment that will eventually explode in anger. Instead, overlooking is an active process that is inspired by God's mercy through the gospel. To truly overlook an offense means to deliberately decide not to talk about it, dwell on it, or let it grow into pent-up bitterness. If you cannot let it go in this way, if it is too serious to overlook, or if it continues as part of a pattern in the other person's life, then you need to go and talk to the other person about it in a loving and constructive manner, end quote. That puts it right, hits it right on the head. Rather than constructively addressing the problem, beloved, merely brushing aside unresolved conflicts, will sooner or later erupt, will sooner or later tear the band-aid of old wounds and hurts, fomenting serious interpersonal conflicts. It is not healthy to walk away and simply say, I'll just forget it, while inside there's turmoil and bitterness. It's not good for you spiritually. It's certainly not good for you physically. Now, some people also deal with this matter of overlooking this way. They say, you know, I'm just going to let it go. And then they leave the fellowship. And sometimes they will leave the fellowship with bitter witness, with anger, and they'll go elsewhere, and they will join another church, which, by the way, let me say this. That's why one of the reasons we don't just take people like that, we typically listen to their testimony, how they got converted. We ask for a letter from where the, the church they are coming. Today what we have is a situation where people can just quickly just jump ship. People will leave in disagreement. People will leave in bitterness. People will leave in anger. And they will go elsewhere. Other places will accept them. And what happens? Let me say this. You, usually what happens, this thing continues with you. Why? Because it was never dealt with. There is a fault which was never addressed. And what happens? That fault resurfaces. That's not what it means to overlook. That's not how we deal with the matter of offenses. We strive for peace by cultivating and forbearing a, by cultivating a forbearing spirit. We strive for peace by forgiving one another, by overlooking minor offenses and irritations. But then we strive for peace, pursuing it ardently. Here it comes by immediately and decisively putting a stop to what could potentially erupt in an argument, a quarrel. Scripture verse, Proverbs 17, verse 14. We, we pursue peace, we pursue it ardently, by immediately and decisively putting a stop to any potential scenario that could erupt in quarrels, in dissensions. Scripture verse, Proverbs 17, 14. Here's what the word of God says. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit 
before the quarrel breaks out. Man, you can't get any more practical than that. That's coming from the Bible. The Bible says the beginning of strife is like letting out water. Therefore, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Stop it at once. And how do we do that? Listen, my friends, we're being practical this morning. Sometimes, you see, what it means is understanding the temperament of the person you're dealing with, the level of maturity, and what you do, you assess the situation. You say, "Uh uh-uh, if I continue with this, trouble, trouble, trouble. You say, Pastor, you're preaching psychology this morning. No, I'm preaching the word of God. See it in the Bible? Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Scripture is saying here that at the first hint of potential dissension and disruption of peace, we are to take immediate steps to put an end to it. Yes, there will be the tempting drive to want to prove the point. You know that? You want to prove a point? You want to assert yourself? Yes. The the temptation to have the last argument, the temptation to prove who makes more sense, the temptation to prove who, after all, is right. But we need to stop and ask the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it which is more crucial to win the war or to lose the peace? This goes into marriage. Here's the point, my friends. If we do not understand our spouses, and particularly, I'm saying this particularly to men, and I'm not speaking in a condescending way, we cannot and must not, we must avoid trying to match them with words. You see? And the Bible tells us that we must dwell with them according to what? Knowledge. There are some things, men, and I'm talking to a, as a man to men, as a man to men, there are some things that's not worth fighting for. Do I always practice this? Do you always practice that, Patrick? Uh-oh. Huh? But here, here's the thing. Some things are not worth fighting for, and we must learn the trouble spots. We must learn to detect where trouble is likely to begin. One of the ways is this. Don't, be keep, don't keep on nagging and gnawing and trying to match words and trying to prove a point and trying to assert your manhood. That's practical. That's coming from the word of God. We are to stop the beginning of strife. We are to stop it before a quarrel breaks out, the word of God says. My friends, pursuing peace with everyone, whether in the church, and the family, at the workplace, involves this. It involves having the wisdom. It involves having the humility. It involves having the grace to recognize that words can be inflammable such that they can, what, wreck relationships. Think of idle, careless words, unthinking words that people will say to one, to one another. Words that are inflammable, words that... That will, that will sink deeply and hurt. For the sake of Christ and for the good of our marriage, our church, and other relationships, you and I should endeavor at all costs to what? Maintain peace, to pursue peace with all men. 
In fact, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 21, the Bible speaks of a quarrelsome person in this manner. Here's how the Bible speaks of a quarrelsome person. As charcoal to hot embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. It goes for women too. We should realize, my friends, that the potential for great evil lies under our tongues. Listen, beloved, apart from the grace of God, this organ of ours is no good, you know. The word of God teaches that. The word of God teaches that. We should realize that the potential for great evil lies under our tongues, the potential to start fierce, ruinous, verbal wildfires. Here's how the Apostle James puts it in James chapter 3, 5 and 6. He says this, the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining. It stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And is set on fire by hell. That's what the Bible says about our tongues. And that is why if our tongues are not brought into submission... To the Spirit of God, we run into very serious problems with one another. James goes on to say in verse 8, he says it is a restless evil. He's talking about the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. We must recognize the potential of words, the potential of the tongue to create conflict. To create dissension. Now, having issued the call to pursue our strive for peace with everyone, the author of Hebrews, notice in verse 14, the B part of verse 14, he then adds this warning. He says, And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those are stern words, you know. Follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think sometimes as Christians we can easily gloss over this and say, well, the Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. Therefore, even if I keep on quarreling with people, you know, being nasty, whatever, it really doesn't matter because I'm saved and so on. But here's what the Bible says. Let's read it again. Follow peace, and all, follow peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Be patient with me now. Watch this. Watch, be patient with me. Right away, it strikes our attention that the author links peace with holiness. Do you notice that? Follow peace with all men. And holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And particularly, when we compare scripture with scripture, it does not seem that the writer linked these two by mere chance. Because when we compare scripture with, with scripture, we see this linkage in scripture between peace and righteousness. Between peace and righteousness. Righteousness is another term related to this matter of holiness. For example, in Psalm 85 verse 10, we see the linkage of 
Righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace, the psalmist says, have kissed each other. Isaiah 32 verse 17 says this, the effect of righteousness will be what? Peace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14 verse 17, the kingdom of God, in other words, the rule of God, is about this. It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You remember Psalm 37 verse 37, which recorded the promise that God the blessing that God promises for those who pursue peace, he says, that man has a future. Listen how the Bible describes that man in Psalm 37, verse 37. It refers to him as blameless and upright. He says, mark the blameless man, mark the upright man. He says, for the end of that man, the man of peace, for the man of peace will have a future. The Bible constantly links peace and peaceableness with holiness, with godliness. So, by contrast, notice, Scripture makes it clear that one who is not given to peacemaking, to one who is not a pursuer of peace, is in fact living a sinful, carnal life. It's a sinful carnal life. First Corinthians 3 verses 2 to 4, Paul says, he says, brethren, when I came to you, I could not even begin to open up to you the deep things of God. He says, because whereas there is strife and envy among you, are you not carnal and living like natural men? In other words, unsaved men. He says, there are divisions among you. And I could not even address you as spiritual people. I could not expose to you the deeper things of God because you're not ready to bear it. Why? Because you are immature by virtue of the presence of strife and dissension in your midst. You say, what other scripture do you have to suggest that living constantly at loggerheads with others, quarrelsome, contentious, is a mark of ungodliness? And let me say this, the word of God in the passage that I'm going to give you suggests this. That conducting oneself in a warlike, disagreeable manner toward others, consistently, may be indicative of the fact that one is not saved. Scripture, Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Listen to what Paul says. Now the works of the flesh are these. And look at the various sins he lists with what I'm going to tell you. He says, the, 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 he says, you want to know what the works of the flesh are? They are these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice what the Bible is not saying. The Bible is not saying that if Christians are loggerheads with one another, they're going straight to hell. That's not true. Truth is, the best of Christians can argue and argue strongly and vigorously and really be at it with one another. 
And may I suggest this, we have said this in, in the past, that when there is, whether in marriage or even in the church, there is division, there's quarrel, there's strife. It's not the worst thing that can happen. In fact, the way I like to see it is this. These occasions really provide an opportunity for us to what? To cultivate and to grow spiritually, to cultivate the graces of the Spirit. Because how are we going to know what it is to forbear, to forgive in the absence of conflicts, antagonisms? These things in the providence of God will come in our lives, in our marriages, in our churches. So what? Give us opportunities for growth. But what I am saying and what Paul is saying here in our text is this, that if as a way of life one is continually nasty and disagreeable and cannot get along and is always fighting with with other people, arguing with one another, contentious, rebellious, Paul says, I warn you, even as I told you before, that those who live like this will not inherit God's kingdom. He says it point blank. It seems then that what the writer is saying here in verse 14 of our text is that part of what it means to be holy, part of what it means to exhibit the fruit of righteousness is to see to this matter of being at peace with our fellow men, in particular with our fellow believers in Christ. The bottom line is this, there is no true holiness, no true godly living where one is constantly at odds with others. According to one commentator, whereas peace relates to right attitude toward others, holiness has in view a right attitude toward God. He writes this, he says, quote, Peace gives unity and fellowship here below. Holiness arises out of fellowship with the Lord who is above. Both are indispensable, end quote. Now let me say this in closing. If that is true, and it is certainly true, then we have here, beloved, a powerful reminder that one cannot rightly and truly claim to be right with God while being at odds with others and especially leaving that situation unchecked and unattended. One cannot be in right relationship with God and be at enmity, bitterness with others, not forgiving and say, well, at least my relationship with God is just between me and God. God knows my heart. God, the Bible suggests that that's false. James says, if there's strife, if there's bitter envying in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This kind of wisdom is not from above, but is earthly. It is sensual. It is demonic. That's what James says in James chapter 3. One cannot truly claim to be right with God while living in disharmony and dissension with others, particularly when it is in our power to make it right. What do we take away from this this morning? It means as best as we know how, we must begin to settle grievances. In the home, husbands and wives might not be talking to one another. They might not be on good terms. The Bible says this, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Persisting in that, if that is persisted in, the word of God promises, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, that if a husband is not rightly related to his wife, it can hinder his prayers. Suppose the same would be true of the wife. 
If her attitude is wrong, and if her relationship with the Lord is out of sync, and her, she's not respecting her husband, not dealing with him right, then her prayers are going to be what? Stymied. Grievances must be settled if we are to pursue peace. In a paragraph in which, and I'm closing now, in a paragraph in which he had been encouraging the Colossians to get rid of anger, to forgive and forbear one another. Here's what Paul says at the end, verse 15. He says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of God, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. I wonder why he says, and be th- thankful at the end. I thought of this, and this thought came to mind. I don't know what was going through Paul's head, but I'm doing a close reading, and it seems to me, in a practical level, you know, sometimes we, there might be bitterness toward another person, and that person's name comes up, and you, we don't want to hear the name of that person. That's what? Anger. Paul says here, let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. Suggested here is this, that when we begin to have a positive mindset, being able to see the good in others, even with those with whom we disagree and with whom we're in strong dissent. And we can be thankful for even the situation. That is evidence of the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Because when the peace of God is ruling in our hearts, what we say is this. God is in charge. I have no control over this person. I have no control over the ending of this conflict in a sense. At the end, God must see it through. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. One man says this, and I quote, this is the last statement. He says, when the peace of God sits on the throne, you will both pursue peace actively and enjoy the peace he gives. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Constantly living in bitterness and anger toward others will shut one out of the kingdom of God. Yes, I don't you believe in the eternal security of the believer. I do, but as Spurgeon says, Spurgeon says, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. But some are not saints, and they don't persevere. Who is sufficient for these things? The grace of God. How we need it. How we need his grace to humble us, to keep us humble. That pride does not get in the way. That we'll be submissive one to another.